This is WTTS In Conversation. I'm Matt Pelser. Happy 2024! We're coming up on three years with this podcast, and I am so thankful you're here for it. I mean, we get to talk to some pretty cool people, so it'd be a shame not to let a few ears into the room with us for those conversations. And this time, it's one that I've wanted to do for a long time, and I finally got the chance back in September, just before the Colts kickoff concert with the Jim Ursay Band and their drummer, Kenny Aronoff. Now, of course, Kenny is better known as having been John Mellencamp's drummer for 17 years in the 80s and 90s, and I had a lot of questions to cram into not quite enough time, but I think we got there. What a fun talk with the loudest drummer in the world, Kenny Aronoff. I talked to Melissa Etheridge last year, and uh, she had dropped an album of older stuff that hadn't seen the light of day yet, and a couple, including a couple live tracks that you played on. Mm-hmm. And she had just such great things to say about you when we talked, and uh, you now have this great podcast called The Kenny Aronoff Sessions, and your first episode is with Melissa. That was a great talk. What a way to kick it off. I mean, your mutual energy with each other was just was better than two cups of coffee. Totally. Oh, my God. With, you know, I always say you have to match your lead singer with your drummer. Yeah. In a band. It's like, you know, you have a sports car, you have to have the right engine. I always, always have said that. And uh, Melissa and I was so well matched. One of the most powerful singers, uh, incredible personality, and we were just matched. The first song I ever recorded was I Want to Come Over. And I, she was... <laughs> what a yeah, way to kick it off. I know. And every, every take... She sang her guts off. She was one of those singers that recorded with us. And every take, she sang her guts off. And after one take, I went into a room and sat on the floor and said, I cannot believe how powerful of a singer you are. I mean, I'd seen her, you know, but I'd never never recorded with her. And I I was just blown away. She's just such a an emotional powerhouse. Great, great woman, too. One of the greatest human beings on the planet. Oh, no, so kind. Um, I've, I've had a couple opportunities to talk to her, and I just it's so wonderful to have a superstar like that be so nice. Um, you're part of the Jim Ursay Band, this super group of great musicians with storied careers just like yours. I'm curious, though, what this bunch is like. So we talked with the other Kenny, Kenny Wayne Shepard, and uh, earlier this year, and he talked about kind of the beginnings of the idea of the Jim Ursay Band back when the Colts... I, I, I guess he started... It started kind of when the Colts won the Super Bowl in 2007. What's your perspective on the evolution? Well, Jim has always been into music, and I've known him for 35 years. And when his dad owned the team, and I was with Mellencamp, and I think I might have met him. I mean, it was way in the 80s. And um, so I became really friends with him, and, and I, I, it's so obvious that music and football are are just so equally important to him. You know, I used to take have him come to concerts, Malacamp, Bob Seger, Joe Cocker, the Smashing Pumpkins, whatever whatever band I was on tour with John Fogarty. I'd invite him and his family. And then he started wanting to have, when he'd have these parties, not when the Colts were at the Super Bowl, but other Super Bowls. So I'd go down and the, the whole Colts, you know, all his friends, he'd bring his friends. And in that camp always was Kenny Wayne Shepard, uh, Mike Mills, me, Mike Wanchek, and Stephen Stills. And we'd go down there, and he'd have a party. And it'd be small, like in a hotel somewhere in one of those uh, ballrooms or even smaller. We'd have a party, we'd get up there and jam. It was loose, real loose. And it was just fun. And then when the Colts, you know, uh, at the Super Bowl, it just started to get bigger and bigger. And then when we hosted the Super Bowl in Indianapolis, now we had a stage and we had lights and now this time John Mellencamp performed with us and it just got bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, about two years ago, 
they decided to do this kind of you know loose thing. I think it was in Nashville. And I couldn't do it because I was, of course, out there busy doing something. So they did it acoustically. You know, just Tom Bukovac, uh, Kenny Wayne, Mike Wanchek, Mike Mills, and maybe Ramos. But maybe. And then the next one, they, I was available. And then it became, uh, I felt like we were playing. We went from a postage stamp stage in Austin. And, and I think we did the Chicago, was it Chicago? Lincoln Memorial outside. And then all of a sudden it was like, it just grew, and next thing you know, we're in Lucas Oil Stadium <laughs> with, with a full, full-on production. Well, you know, I mean, Jim made it happen fast. I mean, and 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 let me add, I was there when he, in Bloomington, when he started doing this collection. I remember he got, you know, uh, the Grateful Dead, uh, you know, Garcia's guitar. And I remember yeah, yeah. there was the purchase of that, and that was the beginning of building it. And he had some other guitars, and it was just a, just a hobby for him. And now, of course, it's over a hundred million dollars, and and the and 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 the collection is way beyond uh, musical instruments. I mean, you got Ringo Starr's drum kit, and you got you know a Prince's guitar, you got Gilmore's, you know Strat. And and by the way, the cool thing about what Jim does that a lot of other people don't do is he'll have Kenny Wayne play like Garcia's guitar he during plays the show. It. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what's so cool. Jim wants to bring these items to life. You know, what I want, I want to put on Muhammad Ali's boxing glove. I don't know if he's got us, but he's got his belt. And it's amazing, you know, that belt that, you know, where he beat Foreman in, in Africa. Yeah. From I mean, those belts are like so tiny and and they don't even look that fancy compared to the belts now. I mean, you know, they're like the size of a car. But anyway, his collection is extraordinary. He goes in, you know, he's got Jack Kerouac, so, you know, the scroll. He's got like uh, Secretariat Saddle that won the Triple Crown. He's got uh, Abraham Lincoln's handwritten letters. He's got, you know, the the, the original book, you know, the Twelve Step Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just all it's just all over the place. It's a fascinating collection. He likes to show it to people, so he brings a part, a very small part of this collection, and then he has this monster concert. You know, we would do three hours. You know, and it's it, it's uh, it's such a unique, cool thing. You ever play the Ringo drum kit? I did. And yeah. They freaked, they freaked <laughs> out. So Tom Bukovac, who has a, a podcast, suckered me into, hey, Kenny, why don't you go and play a few things on that Ringo kit? So I jumped off the stage and got into it, and he started filming. I didn't know it. <laughs> and I started playing it, and it has the original heads. And everybody, I saw all these Colts people come running. No, no, no. And I'm like... <laughs> No, there's no effing way I'm getting off this drum kit. So I started sing I started playing Ticket to Ride and singing it. And then I went into all kinds of different Beatles songs. And of course I wasn't hitting it hard because I was fully aware. Yeah. The, you know. The, I knew. Look at, I am the maybe the loudest and hardest hitting drummer, but I have done so many Kennedy Centers and so many TV specials where sometimes you have to play extremely soft and sometimes with brushes so i can play very very i can play very very soft and it's just that they thought they only thought i could play loud they thought i was gonna destroy the kit they're all going stop stop and i'm like chill out you guys i got this uh i'd be remiss if i didn't bring up john mellencamp we've already talked about him a couple times i don't know how often you see him talk to him but what was that reunion like at last year's kickoff concert oh i love it man i yeah. mean i I, it's funny. I like him more and more and more. I just saw him on Bill Maher, and I thought he just absolutely crushed it. Yeah, he was he was amazing. I was like, 
I don't have his number right now, but I'd call him up and say, dude, I mean, he just was so focused. And so what I like about John is he's always been 100%, 1 billion percent authentic. It, he is what he is. But uh, yeah, I like it, man. Those songs mean so much to me. To play whatever song I play with him that I recorded, Oh my God! The memories, the flashbacks, just the the private jets, the stadiums, uh, the arenas. Uh, I mean, the whole life experience. Uh, it's it's in my bone marrow. And uh, like I said, you 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 match the drummer with the singer, and I felt that he and I were both very very aggressive. Both jocks. Both you know was trying to reach the last person, and way in the back of the audience. Even Bill Burr said that on my podcast. He said, man, I came to see you guys at, in Massachusetts. Uh, it was Foxwoods back then. He said, I came to see you, man, and you put your hand out, and I was way in the back because he was nobody back then. And he thought I was reaching out to him. I says, well, I was. I didn't know it was you, but that's what I did. And that meant so much to him, he said. I'll never forget it. Well, John was the same way, you know. He used to bring, John used to bring, fill up the first three rows with the biggest, with fans that had tickets way in the back. He put them in the front, which is smart, because those people were the most enthusiastic, would set the tone for everybody behind them. Where a lot of times you walk into an arena and you had the season ticket holders. I'll never forget it. We were in Houston, and these people are kind of looking at us, drinking their cocktails, like, who did we come to see tonight? <laughs> who is, wait, what's this guy's name? And John was like, no friggin' way. And if they were sitting down, he'd say, get your ass up, because you're ruining the show for everybody behind you. And he was right, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, a heyday is a heyday, and you kind of touched on it. You played with him for a long time, and that's a long time to be in a band. And yeah. I mean, that was his heyday, and it, it brings with it all kinds of other challenges. So from your perspective, then, what was it like when the shows got bigger, maybe along with the egos? Tell me how you all dealt with it. Uh, you know, the cool thing about the Mellencamp band back then, the band was extremely united. Uh, it was a bunch of nice guys. And yeah. We got along great. It was, yeah, there was no drama within the band. I mean, it was fun. Uh, we worked our asses off. And I said this in my book, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll. The thing I respected about John was, you know, he came from a hardworking family. You know, and, and, and my dad was the same thing. It was like, you know, post-World War II. And so John would have us rehearse from uh, 11 to 5 and then take a two-hour dinner break from uh, 5 to 7, then we rehearse 7 to 11 or whenever. Five days a week, like a job. Oof. That's how we got better. That's how we got better. And I like to say that because a lot of kids think it's just going to land on them or you get a lot of followers on TikTok and you're, you're in. You cannot set it and forget it. You know, I do a lot of public speaking now, and I always say that. I mean, you, you know, it, the reason why Tom Brady has seven rings is because he never said it and forget it. He Whatever made him successful... He's kept doing to stay successful. That's what I do. I have a two-hour practice routine. I do I do every day when I'm on tour. Every day. It's because I know if I do that, I'm going to sound great tonight. And there's no way I'm going on stage without sounding great tonight. And I just don't trust that once I sound great, doesn't mean you stay great. You have to maintain that. John worked us hard, but we all got it. And it paid off. And I think uh, with John, the big change with him was he was having to do like, you know, five interviews on the day of a show. Me and Mike Wanchak would pick up a little slack, but, and then he, he was dealing with the management. He was dealing with the lawyers. He was dealing with the radio. He was dealing with record companies. He was dealing with the record stores. John was running his business. 
And so he not only was the performer, the songwriter, the singer, but he had all this other stuff, and it, and it put a lot, a lot of pressure on him. And that's why he took a break after our last concert on the Jubilee tour. It was like, enough, I get it, you know? So that was the big change. But, man, it was it was exciting to see us go when the American Fool was out. We were promoting that, opening up for Heart for nine months. We were flying around in two six-seated little planes. Well, they almost crashed a couple times, and I was oh, on one god. of them. Oh my god! Yeah, we just kind of ran out of gas, or something happened one night. We were flying, the plane just stopped. That's what it was. Uh. We went oh man! Anyway, the point is, we saw. Uh, also, we had hurt so good that was number two on top one hundred. And back then, you know, top one hundred, you know, it's one thing to be number one on some of these other charts, but when you were number one or number two in the top ten on the top one hundred Billboard singles charts. Mm -hmm. You were on every radio station, every TV show. That's really number one. And so Jack, uh, Herzl Good went to number two and stayed there because I, the Tiger, kind of kept us out. Rocky was out. And, uh, but then they released uh, Jack and Diane because it tested so well. And it became number one. And Jack and Herzl Good stayed in the top ten. Now we had two songs in the top ten. All of a sudden, the audience started to become more and more Mellencamp fans. And we were noticing we, more and more people were standing up and singing with us. And that really, that album which won two Grammys, really launched, blew John's career up, and it launched my career and the band's career. It was extraordinary. Do you mind if we go back to like the, the very beginning of the John Mellencamp Association, um, Nothing Matters, What If It Did? You, you didn't play the drums, you played the vibraphone, but like, I mean, that's kind of, from my perspective, how things got started. Oh, absolutely. That was a, that, you know, back then I was devastated. You know, what happened was I had just gotten in the band. I'd been in the band for five weeks and Steve Cropper, the producer, uh, you know, he needed to get this record done like in eight weeks. It was a time limit because he was going out with the Blues Brothers. So, and I just, I was, the bottom line is I was green. I had, didn't matter. I played with Leonard Bernstein. I'd played a concerto competition. I'd done this and that. I was not an expert at this. The purpose of a drummer, when you make a record that's going to be played on the radio, the purpose, the North Star, is get the song on the radio to be a number one hit. Mm. I didn't know anything about that. It's not about me. It's about the song. It's about serving John. It's serving the band. It's all about everything but me. What can I do? What drum part can I come up with that's going to make this song get on the record and then get on the radio and be a number one hit? Well, nobody tells you that. Nobody tells you that. So I didn't, I was green. I didn't have the cool drums. I didn't, and I didn't know it until John told me in an interview that I thought John fired me. It wasn't me. It was Steve Cropper wanted session drummers in there that had the experience. And he, because you had to get the drums first back then. So, but John was the one that delivered the message. And I was devastated, absolutely devastated, mortified, crushed. I felt like a loser. But, well, the words that came out of my mouth when he told me you go home were life-changing. I basically said, no friggin' way, am I going home? And it was like weird. There was silence, and the band's just kind of like, what? That's like saying you're fired, and you go, no, I'm not. And he <laughs> says, well, you're fired. I said, no, I'm not. This is, well, what don't you understand about the words you're fired? Because, see, he was trying to take away my purpose in life, my bliss. I thought, this is it. I finally made it. And now they're taking it away. I went, no way. So I said, Are you, am I still your drummer? And he said, well, yeah, but you're not playing on the record. I said, well, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to, I was fumbling. I said, I'm going to look, I want to watch those other guys, those other drummers play my drum parts on your record. I'll learn from them. I'll get better. 
And then uh, I'm your, your drummer, so that's good for you. And it was complete silence. I went, finally, I said, all right, look, it, you don't have to pay me. I'll sleep on the couch. And that was basically, sure, why not? <laughs> you know? and, and I did learn a lot. Oh, my God, I, I took notes. I stayed there for four weeks, embarrassed, and I did play percussion, and I played vibes on the record. I came home, and I vowed to make the next record, and I revamped my whole style of playing to learn how to be the best drummer I could be for John Cougar Mellencamp and his music and his band. And I started relearning and studying and trying to be like more like Charlie Watts from The Stones, Doug Clifford from uh, Cheap Trick, you know, Simon Kirk from uh, Bad Company, you know, bands that played songs and that the drummer was an integral part of laying it down. That's, they became my teachers. And I learned how to be, I was trying to learn how to be the best drummer I could be for John Mellencamp, John Mellencamp band, and, you know, serve the song. And that was the biggest lesson I learned from being fired from the Nothing matters from what I did record. Of course, I was devastated back then, but now I look at it as one of the greatest gifts of my life. Well, I'm yeah, a lesson, a lesson learned. Well, okay, and then let's skip to the end of that journey in the mid '90s. And I and I don't know exactly when you were done. Dane Clark then joined up, who I talked to last year. Great guy, level-headed guy. Yeah. You got to be when you're playing with someone like Mellencamp. I know that you keep plenty busy and you got plenty of professional relationships. Um, where were your feelings on that being the end? I guess. Uh, it was just a natural thing. See, what happened when, when John took some time off, it was supposed to be three years off. We did Big Daddy anyway, and John went off and did a movie, and he got really into painting. Uh, I think John just was, was fried, you know, because like I said, he was running, he was handling everything. It was full-time. Boy, I can relate to that now since I've got so many things going on in my life. You know, uh, you know. So I have my own studio. I, I write books. I'm a speaker. I've got a wine out. I've got you know this podcast now. I tour with all kinds of different bands. What happened was when John took some time off. I went, oh my god! I just gotten divorced, and I thought, wow! I didn't realize if he doesn't work, I'm out of a job. I went, wow! Okay, I got to figure out how to make an income. So I, long and short of it, I became a really, really popular and successful session drummer and eventually had drums in uh, New York, Nashville, L.A., Indiana, of course, where I lived, Japan and Germany. And because people were selling records, I'm on three records that sold 40 million copies. Yeah, man. And the labels were making like, you know, 85 cents, 82 cents on the dollar. Do the math. And so these people had money to fly me all over the world, sometimes just to do one song. And so I was like, wow, suddenly my income went way the heck up, and I had a different career going on with being part of the band. And listen, I turned down an Elton John tour to stay with John. Uh. I turned down I turned down a High Women tour. That's remember the manager from the High Women going like, all right, let me get this right. You're going to say no to Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, and Chris Christopherson. I went, yep. And I remember <laughs> I remember Bernie Taupin coming to the forum. And we were, had sold out, Mellencamp sold out the forum two nights, 360 degrees. People in the audience, our shows, people were up dancing before the show. Bernie comes up to me, runs right up to me at the forum, backstage goes, God, I can't believe I got you the Elton John tour and you turned it down. And I went, me either. And I went, <laughs> but come here, look at this. When I walk on stage with this band in this place, I've recorded every song I'm playing. I'm not just a guy in the back. I'm like the engine in this band. I said, so, and why are you here? 
you came here to see John Mellencamp and the band. So I said, you know, this is not an easy thing to let go of. And it wasn't because I felt like it was my, it was my band too, you know. But what was happening was I, you know, John would call up or his people would call up and say, John needs you next week. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm in L.A. making a record with Little Feet. Or no, I'm in Nashville making a record with Hank Jr. And it just got, John needed somebody that was more accessible. And I didn't want to give up the session thing. It was so exciting for me. And I was on tour with Bob Seger. John had given his blessing as long as I could finish up the last record. It was all worked out. It's a really funny story how I had to, uh, we had a show in Hong Kong. And I had to fly after the show in Hong Kong. It was a corporate thing to promote his new record. I had to go Hong Kong to Japan land in Detroit, get into a helicopter, fly to the palace, and do the first of three shows with Bob Seger. And I got on stage five minutes before the band at Soundcheck. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, it was just John needed somebody that was available 24-7, and I was not anymore. And I didn't want to give up my recording thing. I liked it too much. And so it just was a, a, a we just parted ways. In a, in a natural way. He says, you know, it's obvious you want to do this. So, yeah, that's what happened. And Dane came in, and Dane's been there ever since. Yeah, yeah. And uh, both of you, great, obviously, and uh, thankful for the time that you had and the records, of course. Kenny, man, this is uh, this has been a bucket list talk. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Awesome, man. Anything Indiana is good for me. <laughs> I already have more questions for Kenny. I'd love to bring him back sometime. You hear that, Kenny? And hey, while you're on the podcasts, you know, the podcasts, uh, check out his, the Kenny Aronoff Sessions. It's great. I'm Matt Pelser. We're back again in a couple weeks. Talk to you then.